The Bob Murphy Show, episode 156. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, I'm going to be unveiling a new series called E-Contradictions. So it's like econ and contradictions blended into one for the busy professional who can't spare the time to have two separate words and needs to merge into a single word for the phrase. So as the name suggests, what I'm going to be doing here is tackling economic subjects that at first glance at least suggest that there's a contradiction and then I'll either say, yep, that is true. There's a tension at least or an outright contradiction within the way that free market libertarians, let's say, typically handle certain things, or I'll resolve the apparent tension and show, ah, yes, our worldview is consistent after all. So on this one, I'm going to be tackling two of these alleged or apparent contradictions. One has to do with, so on the one hand, we'll say that typically when it comes to free trade and arguments for it, and if, uh, oh, gee, China, the Chinese government subsidizing its exports to the United States in order to boost their exports, but that throws Americans out of work. And the free trader will typically respond by saying, no, this is just, you know, a gift from China. And gee, we wouldn't uh, look askance at the sun providing us with light for free, would we? You know, because after all, if we barred the sunlight from coming in, then all of a sudden we'd have more jobs for the candle makers, a la Bastiat's uh, famous petition, satirical petition. All right, so that, there's that argument. But then on, on the other hand, libertarians also often will talk about the welfare state and will use the argument and say that government payments will, by the way, there's a baby in the background in case you hear any strange noises, will say that government payments make the recipient worse off, especially when it's tied to being an unwed mother, for example. That if, you know, if you get paid more, if you have kids and you're not married, well, then that's going to actively hurt families and, you know, trap women and their children into generational poverty. And, you know, so it makes them worse off. So it's not merely that it's unconstitutional or, you know, violation of abstract libertarian principles. It actually hurts the recipient. So in my supporters group, and by the way, you can join that elite group by going to bobmurphy.com slash contribute. I asked them for recommendations for an episode like this one. And so this is one of the ones that people brought up, you know, saying it looks like those two trains of thought are at least intention, if not outright contradictory, because you're just giving more options to the welfare recipients. You can still say it's bad from a social point of view or from an aggregate point of view or whatever, but how can you argue that it hurts the recipient to be given free money? You know, albeit with conditions attached, okay? Because they can always just, they can just choose not to take the check, right? So how could that possibly hurt them? And then the other issue I will be tackling 
has to do with, on the one hand, when there is like a natural disaster, libertarian free market types will say, oh, we don't want to have laws against price gouging because we need market prices to help steer those now very scarce resources like, you know, bottled water or flashlights or whatever. We need high prices to signal their relative scarcity now or their enhanced scarcity. And we need the market to channel them to where they're needed most. You know, we might use language like that. And if the government comes in with anti-price gouging laws or regulations, that's just going to cripple that process. And so now the market's not going to move those goods to where they are needed most. But on the other hand, when we're just talking about utility theory, as free market economists, we will often stress the fact that there's no such thing as interpersonal utility comparisons. That strictly speaking, it's nonsense to say a dollar means more to a poor man than to a rich man. It's not just that it might be false. We're saying it's a nonsensical statement. It doesn't even mean anything when you know, you know, standard utility theory, right? So that's, and so then the, the person in my group was saying, you know, I, I do high fives. I like both of those claims considered separately, and I've always been on board with them, but yet I can't help but feel how can I believe both of those at the same time? How can it be that you can't even do interpersonal utility comparisons and yet we can also, matter of fact, we talk about how the market's going to steer limited resources to where they're needed most. What does that even mean? All right, so two excellent topics for today's show. And I didn't say this, but obviously part of the reason for me going over this stuff is not just to possibly weed out contradictions or whatever, but by me just explaining these things, it'll be a good opportunity you know, for you to hear these standard items spelled out in case you've never heard it before. Okay, so it's, let's go to the first one first. Let me just very quickly recapitulate the standard argument and then I'll try to deal with the uh, apparent contradiction. So again, when it comes to free trade, the, a popular argument against free trade is to say, hey, yeah, we're, we're fine if, you know, some other country can honest to goodness make goods more cheaply than we can. And so, you know, they can, they can afford to ship it to us for $5, whereas our people, we'd have to pay them six to make it. Then by all means, let's import it. You know, Adam Smith was right about that. Okay, fine. But they'll say, if the reason they're able to export it to us is because their government is subsidizing it, well, then that's cheating and that shouldn't count. And why should American workers get thrown out of work just because some foreign government's subsidizing their exports? That's crazy. That's unfair. And besides, it's sinister and we're being short-sighted and, and naive. They're doing that to win market share. And then they're going to jack the price up once they destroy our domestic industry. You know, they might go on and make arguments like that. But in any event, they will say, you know, that this is a dangerous thing. And so a typical response from free market libertarians to that is to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. So now we're afraid of getting cheap imports from abroad. How can that be? Are you, are you arguing that this is actually making us poorer and that we would somehow be you know, enhancing our, our welfare and protecting our citizens by putting a tariff in place, for example, and taxing those things so that if, let's say, the Chinese government is subsidizing certain manufactured goods and its exports to us, that we should levy a tariff to undo that to, to restore it to, you know, a competitive level. And the argument is often made that, you know, this will make us wealthier, that this would be good for the economy. 
And so that, again, the free market libertarian standard response, and I certainly have made arguments like this over the years. In fact, I've heard Dave Smith repeat it and cite me, and I thought, oh, yes, I'm making a difference out there. That, you know, just take it to its logical conclusion. Suppose the Chinese government not just subsidized it to provide a bit of a price break, but suppose they bought, for example, TVs outright and just sent them over for free, just gave us gifts. Would you say that would make us poorer? And, and if, if you do say that, let me just look at what you've been reduced to. You're now arguing that when some other entity gives you free stuff, that makes you worse off and that makes you poorer. And how can that be? And then often we will hearken back to a famous, probably one of the most famous essays in political economy that's ever been written, Frederick Bastiat's, the short title we'll give is a petition of the, the candle makers. It's actually long, you know, the one he, well, it was in French for one thing, but it was, it was longer and less punchy in the original, I believe, as I recall, but fabulous essay. And so it's satirical and Bastiat is pretending to write a petition on behalf of the candle makers of France proposing to the French government, hey, I've got this great way to promote industry. Let's pass a law so that during sunup hours, every building in France has to, you know, pull down the shades or whatever, you know, the blinds, curtains to keep the sunlight out, right? So we'll exclude this unfair competition from nature, from the sun. And then that, if people could no longer have let the sunlight into their buildings, well, then they'll need to buy more candles because this was written obviously before electric lights. And that will provide a stimulus to our candle making industry. Won't that be great? Look at all the business and jobs it'll create. So this is a great proposal. So that's obviously absurd. But, you know, Bastiat's point is, don't just say, oh, come on, that's ridiculous and move on with your life. Consider why it's ridiculous. Because if you do, then you'll realize why the seemingly more respectable sounding calls for tariffs on like English exports, you know, which was existing back then you'll see why those are also silly, right? Because for the same reason, just not as exaggerated. And so in this case, you just go through and you say, all right, if the sun is giving us light for free, at least for certain hours of the day, we would be foolish to ignore that free gift from nature. Let's go ahead and accept that. And then, yes, it's true. That means we need to make fewer candles. So now those workers who could have been making candles don't need to, but that doesn't make us poor. That means those workers are now freed up to go make something else. So we get the light and whatever it is those workers make on top of that. So we have more stuff. We've got the light plus whatever was made with the workers who otherwise would have had to make more candles and, you know, whatever other ingredients, uh, inputs go into making candles, right? So you, you see how ignoring the free gift from nature would be crazy. You would, you would clearly be poor doing that. So likewise, if China wants to artificially subsidize TV or, or subsidize TV exports and make them artificially cheap, why wouldn't we accept that gift? That doesn't, how does that make us poor? It makes the Chinese people poor, right? So it's a silly policy, so they should object to it. But we as Americans, if the Chinese government wants to subsidize the export of TVs, why would we refuse that free gift? And like, and again, the analysis goes through, it's true that will mean fewer jobs for U.S. workers. And if you don't like TV production, pick something else where it's more relevant and applicable. So yes, U.S. workers don't need to make as much of the thing now that the Chinese government is artificially um, making cheap, but that frees U.S. workers to make something else. 
So America as a whole is richer. Now, it's true, those particular workers might be hurt, but the people who buy the TVs, their gains more than offset that. Just like in Bastiat's example, the candle makers themselves, they might be hurt by the policy of letting sunlight in, but clearly France as a whole is richer if you let the sunlight in and don't make so many more candles that you don't need to, you know, if you were to have allowed the sunlight in, right? So that's, that's the argument. Seems pretty good. Now, let's spell out the argument. For, put that to a side. Let's pretend we don't remember that. And now when it comes to railing against the welfare state, it is often claimed by free market libertarian types. And by the way, I'm joining those two, those, those phrases, like a free market economist and a philosophical political libertarian. They need not go together, but they often do. So I'm just, as a shorthand, putting those together without commenting on that issue further in this episode. What they will often say is, sure, taxation is theft. So, you know, taking money from gunpointed people and giving it to other poor people is not the right thing to do, period, on principle. But then pragmatically, you know what? It's not even clear in the long run you're actually helping those people. Aren't you perpetuating a system of poverty over the generations? Because the way in practice these payments have been calibrated is, at least in the United States, if you're a you know young mother who's below the poverty line and you have kids, you get paid, again, loosely speaking here, I'm not sure exactly what year I'm referring to here, but just generally speaking, the more kids you have, the more payment you get, you know, with WIC and food stamps and whatnot. And if you're unmarried, you get paid more. Or going the other way, if you were to get married, then the amount of money you get from the government goes down. All right, and so the question, so, okay, and, and then the argument is not only is that bad from the perspective of the taxpayer who, you know, hey, if, if you want to contribute to those causes, then go ahead and do it. Why are we forcing you to do it, right? If, 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 so, if so many Americans support these programs and in this country we can't stand by and let unwed mothers just die in the streets, okay, I agree Americans would be against that, but that's why you don't need to have coercive programs in place for those funding. All right, so the argument, again, is that it's not merely that these welfare payments are problematic from the perspective of the U.S. taxpayer, but that they actually hurt the recipients, too. That they make the people who accept those food stamps poorer in the long run, right? If you check in 20 years later, geez, those people are still, you know, on assistance from Uncle Sam. They haven't gotten out of poverty because of these payments. It's crippled them. It's, it's uh, you know, inculcated dependency. So, you know, that's okay. Seems a good argument. But then zoom back and look at those two narratives side by side or those two standard moves rhetorically. And isn't there at least a tension, if not an honorary contradiction? In other words, how is it, how come when the Chinese government subsidizes American consumers, that's making them poorer necessarily? Like, duh, of course. And yet when the federal government subsidizes teen mothers, unwed teen mothers, let's say, that makes them poorer. You know, how, how can that be? You know, isn't, what's the difference? And this, this argument comes up, there's a lot of conservative, like family values types who are against free trade or at the very least think that the libertarian dogmatic commitment to free trade, regardless of what foreign governments are doing, is naive. So a lot of these guys... They will say, yeah, if other governments had a level playing field and they were just like minarchist states or whatever, 
yeah, sure, it would be for free trade. That's fine. The, the old logic goes through, but not when it comes to the current geopolitical landscape. You're being incredibly naive. They'll argue, and and like I said, and someone in my private group brought it up as well. So that's that's the apparent tension. Okay, so for the first thing I want to do on this one is uh, point out that there actually is a perhaps important difference in the two scenarios that might not jump out at you at first, but when you think through it, you realize there is this fairly important difference, I think. And that is, we're taking the Chinese government's exports as a given, export subsidies as a given, and then asking, should the U.S. government throw up a tariff barrier in retaliation or, you know, some other type of impediment in the way of those subsidized exports coming in? And in contrast, we're at the source of the welfare payments when it comes to the you know domestic example involving food stamps and WIC benefits and whatever. So to be more analogous, to really make the two situations more comparable, really what it, the question would be is to say, oh, if you're as a libertarian free marketeer against the U.S. federal government putting up retaliatory or let's say compensatory tariffs to offset the Chinese government's subsidies to its export sector, then by consistency, you should also favor, or sorry, you should also be against state governments enacting compensatory taxes on their residents if they accept federal benefits from the welfare state. And, and so are you consistent, Mr. Libertarian? And actually, I think a lot of libertarians would say, oh, yeah, I mean, even though I'm against the federal government sending out food stamps to people, I think I'm also against the state government or the local government punishing people with extra taxes if they accept those things mailed out by the federal government. You see, you see what I'm saying? That that's really what the issue would be to make it really uh, analogous. And, so, and once you do fix that flaw in the analogy to make it more analogous, then it does seem that maybe the libertarian is going to do the exact same thing and hence even prima facie be consistent. All right, so let me just say that one more time in case you lost me. The claim is, just to remind you before I try to give one of the resolutions, the claim is that there's this, this inconsistency that on the one hand, the free market libertarian says the federal government should not stand in the way of the Chinese government subsidizing American consumers of television sets or cars or whatever. Yet on the other hand, they argue that federal welfare benefits can harm the benefit, the alleged beneficiaries or the ostensible beneficiaries, the recipients, let's say. And so, hey, isn't that a contradiction? And I'm saying, well, no, because they're, they're arguing turn off those subsidies in the first place, right? And so the libertarian does consistently say, like if the Chinese government asked the libertarian, should we subsidize our exports? The libertarian would say, no, you shouldn't. Just like if the federal U.S. federal government said, should we make these welfare payments? The libertarian would say, no, you shouldn't. But then given that the Chinese government is subsidizing exports and now the U.S. government says to the libertarian, should we tax our people, Americans, to try to undo the effects of what the Chinese government is doing, the libertarian says, no, you shouldn't. And so then if the state government, for example, said, oh, Mr. Libertarian, I heard you were against these welfare benefits coming from Uncle Sam. So should we at the state level like enact an extra tax and put it only on people who accept federal benefits to try to offset that, to level the playing field? And the libertarian would probably say no. 
that, yeah, given, I wish Uncle Sam weren't selling those benefits, but given that he is, you're only going to make things worse or at the very least you're violating rights if you then enact your own taxes on people thinking you're going to perfectly offset it, right? So I think most libertarians would oppose that. And so it, it does look like, no, actually there is a consistency. Now, even though I think it's important for me to point that out just to help clarify your thinking on this stuff, I, I don't think that solves the problem because still there is the issue that when the libertarian tells the Chinese government, no, I don't think you should subsidize your exports. The, the reason has to do with either like a natural rights perspective to say, you know, you're harming your own people, you're taxing Chinese people to be able to pay for those subsidies. And so that's not right. And also probably the reason you as the Chinese government think that's a good idea is you have this idea that, oh, we want to boost our export sector and that's wrong economically. You're not making your country richer as a whole by giving artificial competitiveness, let's say, to certain export sectors or export industries, right? So that that's wrong. But what I don't think you would say is a typical libertarian to the Chinese government is don't subsidize your exports to America because that would make the Americans poorer. You wouldn't say that, right? You better not say that because the way you try to tell the Americans don't bother putting up compensatory tariffs is you're saying this is actually making us richer to get these cheap TVs coming and these, you know, these TVs that are actually cheaper than the market would do without the Chinese government's interference, right? So you better not tell the Chinese you're hurting the Americans by doing that. And yet you're still, at least many typical libertarians would still say the U.S. government, yes, we think you should stop these welfare payments because number one, if you, whatever your natural rights view or view of the proper role of government is, probably the federal government sending food stamps is, isn't within that range of acceptable activity. But also, many would say, you're making the recipients poor. Okay, so even though I clarified the roles of the government, whatever, still, there does seem to be this glaring problem. So here, let me just bite the bullet and say, yeah, actually, in terms of mainstream neoclassical economic theory and even a lot of other standard free market economist rhetoric, it is true that you, you know, normally you'd say don't be paternalistic, you know, just uh, don't assume you know better than somebody else. Don't judge their choices. That's like, you know, we shouldn't have a tax on cigarettes because, oh, the poor are too stupid. They don't know that smoking's bad for them. Normally, libertarians don't talk like that, right? They say, who are you, Mr. Paternalist government agent? Let people do what they want. And so given that framework, then it is inconsistent. If you then want to turn around and argue in general, giving welfare benefits to people is going to hurt them, right? Because they should be. So again, if it really, in, in case you're getting tripped up on this, there, there, do, there does seem to be an important difference, right? The fact that the, the welfare payments are tied to something. So in other words, suppose the Chinese government sent over TVs and said, this is, uh, you can get this TV either for $100 or we'll give it to you for $10 if you agree not to read any books this year. Then we'll give you the TV for $10. And you know somehow they monitor that, right? You can see how that might be a bad deal. And that, gee, you really ought not do that. That's going to make you, that's going to hurt you in the long run if you accept these really cheap TVs in exchange for promising not to read books that year. All right. And so maybe you think that's more analogous to, you know, the perversity of certain welfare state benefits that are, you know, basically saying, 
we'll give you this money, but only if you don't have a job. Or we'll give you this money, but only if you have a bunch of kids and don't get married to the father. You see how that works? Okay, so having said all that though, I'm saying, yes, there is a strain of certainly formal neoclassical economics, but also the way libertarians in some settings reject paternalism, like the kind of, you know, quick arguments they would use that would also say, okay, well, people can make their own, own minds up about whether that, that string that's attached to the goodie is too expensive. And, and who are you to judge whether, even though the condition that's attached to giving you the benefit has a harm attached to it, whether on net it's still good for you to accept that deal or not, right? Like what, you know, think of the libertarian arguments for the legalization of kidney sales, right? The typical paternalist statist would say, oh no, you can't have a free market in kidneys. That'd be crazy. Poor people would be selling their kidneys for, you know, money to go buy a crack or something. You can't. And so a normal libertarian who wants to object to that is going to say, oh, listen to you, Mr. Uptight paternalistic liberal. You're going to tell the poor what's what's good for them, that, that you know, maybe many of them would like to sell a kidney for $20,000 and then, you know, provide for their family. But you're going to say, you're going to make that judgment for them and say, no, you can't. Who are you? Okay, so that's how you normally would talk. So again, it would be tricky to then decide, oh, but these welfare benefits, no, 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 young teenage girls who got pregnant, let's say, and you're deciding what to do, you can't decide that taking Uncle Sam's money, but then getting a bigger check without being married is is the best course of action. You can't make, right? So a lot of them would say that, and certainly in, in formal neoclassical economics models, agents are rational and they would make the correct decision, at least according to their own, you know, utility function or value scales. So that's true. So actually, yeah. And, and some libertarians may in fact be using contradictory arguments. Um, I guess the what I would say there is this is an area where economics is wrong. You know, that I, I do think especially younger people, it makes sense to argue that they can make decisions that are not in their long run best interest. I mean, anybody can make a decision not in their long run best interest, but especially young people. And so to have, you know, a system set up like that with those incentives is crazy. Just like if some private charity had those incentives built into it, you know, we, we might talk about, geez, how can we fix this? Certainly, you know, not to make it the formula explicit such that someone trying to decide whether or not to get married gets more money if they're not. Like, that'd be crazy, right? So you, you want to make sure that if you had a private charity, it didn't have those perverse incentives. But, you know, so I, I am saying that. And so, yep, I, I agree. Certain libertarians probably are contradicting themselves uh, between those arguments in certain cases. And that the way I would resolve this is to say, so what my point is, I'm still okay with saying with using that argument about why the welfare state is so perverse, or at least the way it used to be, maybe before an overhaul, and that sending free or sending subsidized TVs to the America doesn't make us poor. It makes us richer. But I am pointing out that there could be other areas where I could see the way the paternalism is used either for or, you know, to, to rebut the statist or the paternalism is on the side of the libertarians to say, oh, that's why the welfare state's wrong. I do. I can't imagine scenarios where that would be contradictory. So it is true that in general, as the welfare state argument shows, economists, I don't think, can say, oh yeah, everybody always makes the correct decision. Like in some cases, 
that theoretical baseline is stretched so far, particularly with younger people, that it's, it's not even a good baseline to be using. Let me now, though, again, so even though I've conceded that, yeah, in principle, sometimes libertarians might abuse this benchmark of somebody always doing what's in his or her best interest, or who are we to second-guess somebody else's uh, judgments, let me still, though, defend this typical usage that sending TVs over does not make Americans poor if the Chinese government subsidizes that, right? So that's, it's, you couldn't, even though I've opened the possibility, I'm, I'm still saying in practice, no, on this particular case that was the one presented to me that I was supposed to resolve, I still don't think that that goes through, that you can't use some kind of paternalistic argument. So it's not true, for example, to say, oh yeah, in the short run, taking these cheap TVs from China might seem like a good idea, but then once it hollows out our manufacturing base, then we'll realize, oh no, what did we do? And so I'm saying, no, no, like from the perspective of, quote, the economy as a whole, it's not that the economy as a whole, a whole is like the 16-year-old girl who gets pregnant and doesn't want to marry her boyfriend and, you know, goes down and accepts Uncle Sam's money and then, you know, gets hooked on the welfare state and then realizes 10 years later, oh no, even though that check seemed like a, a lifesaver at the time, actually a doom, but no, those situations actually aren't comparable. So part of the reason, I'm just repeating myself a little bit here, is that it's not like China is saying, hey, those workers right now that are making TVs in America, we'll send your country a bunch of free TVs or really cheap TVs, but those people then now have to sit at home and not be employed. That's not actually what happens. Those people are allowed to go elsewhere in the system, you know, because now we don't need them making TVs. All right, so clearly there is, there's more higher, there's, there's higher output, all right? Whereas again, the typical argument against the welfare state is it's incentivizing you, is saying we're gonna, you're gonna get more money if you do things that are, less productive. And so that's not what's going on in the standard, you know, free trade example or scenario. And even if you want to make some real complicated argument like, oh no, well, what if they send in the TVs for a while, undercutting the U.S. business, and then once we lose the capacity, you know, once we give up our factories and outsource everything, and we, you know, and all of our workers shift to other things like service jobs and whatever, software design and boom now the chinese raise the prices on those tvs because they got us over a barrel those types of scenarios no if people in government or if the conservative believer in you know family values who doesn't trust free trade or a libertarian economist if that person is smart enough to see this possibility so are tv dealers right so are wall street hedge fund managers and so if it really were the case that TVs were going to be really cheap for a while and then the price was going to skyrocket, well, there would be entrepreneurs who could benefit from that, right? They could, I mean, depends what you want to talk about. Like on scenario, if it's just a quick thing, they could stockpile TVs, right? So if China, again, is selling TVs for $10 to put everybody out of business in the U US and then is going to jack them up to $200, well, somebody could stockpile the TVs at 10 and then sell them later for 190 Okay, so you see how that works? And then you'd say, oh yeah, okay, but you know, we're talking about a long-term thing. All right, well, again, it would be somebody who saw that coming could keep a factory and turn it over and make things that aren't TVs while the Chinese are still flooding the market with really cheap TVs and then switch back over 
you know, when the TV price gets jacked up to 200 and you say, oh no, it's not worth it because the way this, the way the example works is at the $10, they can't be competitive. Right. But if there's this chance that the price is going to go to 200, then they can stay competitive or, you know, they can mothball the factory. Right. So I'm, what I'm getting at is I'm not, I'm not, I'll drop the point now because it's, if you're not seeing it, probably me just talking about it more is not going to convince you. But my point is if you actually spell out the scenario where it's worth it to the U.S. to put in a tariff to prevent the possibility of the Chinese undercutting U.S. manufacturers to put them out of the business and then they jack the prices up and flood the market with the more expensive TVs and now we can't compete because we got knocked out. And so therefore we'll put in a tariff to prevent the cheap TVs in the first place. If that makes sense, then I claim it would also make sense for people in the private sector to take steps that would also, you know, expend more resources than necessary on the front end when the cheap TVs are coming in to then they'll be nimble enough to seize the opportunity and compete once the TV price goes up to 200. And if you're going to say, oh, well, in practice, could the people in the market predict that? They're going to be a lot better at predicting that than the people imposing tariffs are, right? To assume the political process is going to be better at forecasting TV prices over time. That's crazy, right? Because the people in the public sector, so-called public sector, don't have the incentive to get that right, nor do they have the competence. All right, so again, just to summarize, in practice, I still fully stand behind the idea that you're making Americans poorer if you were to put up tariff barriers to prevent subsidized products from coming in. But also, I think it's okay to say you're probably hurting the recipients of welfare benefits. It's certainly, you know, ones that discourage marriage, let's say, in the, in the long run, that you're making those people worse off besides just abstractly violating the NAP. Okay, so moving on to the other argument, let me just summarize what the two positions are and then we'll try to reconcile them or just throw in the towel and say, yep, there seems to be a contradiction. So when it comes to the natural disaster, the argument goes like this, that there's a hurricane or a flooding that hits, prices left to their own devices would skyrocket on things like bottled water and batteries and whatever because you know there's limited supplies now. And you don't want to, the government is a liberal free market libertarian, you don't want the government coming in and imposing price caps on that to say, oh no, if we catch anybody gouging, we're going to punish you. Because that would cripple what's actually the correct, desirable response of the market. When there is this sudden emergency and all of a sudden everybody really wants, you know, gasoline or bottled water or batteries. And there's, it's hard for outsiders to come in with a supply. Well, the demand shoots way up. The supply is relatively constant. So that means the market clearing price has gone up. And if you don't let that happen, well, then there's going to be a shortage. And what you're going to end up having is the first few people, for example, that get to the, to the gas station, the convenience store, are going to clear the place out. They're going to buy all the bottled water. They're going to buy all the toilet paper. All right, so only a few households are going to have way more than they need. And then everybody else that shows up is going to see the shelves are empty. So yeah, it's great that the government made sure the price didn't jump beyond what it normally would be before the disaster hit. But that doesn't do me any good if there's nothing on the shelves. Whereas if they did allow the store owner to jack the price up to, you know, $20 for a six pack of bottled water, then people, when they, you know, the disaster hit and they ran to the store and say, well, let's get some water. 
they would say, what? You're charging $20 for a six pack of water? Are you kidding me? Well, just give me one pack then. All right, you wouldn't clear the shelves out. You'd really be careful about what you bought. And so that would ensure that other people who showed up at the store would at least get some. So you're saying, oh, geez, at those high prices, everybody would be really careful about what they bought. Right, that's exactly what you want people to do in this situation. Incidentally, elsewhere, I've argued, if you're worried about, well, gee, that seems to be exploiting people. So number one, knowing there's a possibility that if there's a sudden interruption of supply, they can you know, quadruple the price. If they were in a regime where they knew they could do that and keep their money, and it wouldn't be that the public would have an outcry and the you know, attorney general would come by and fine you later for having done that, then what does that mean? That means the normal carrying stock would be higher, right? Especially if you were in a city that often got hit by natural disasters, flooding or tornadoes or whatever, hurricanes, right? Because again, if you knew that, oh yeah, there's a one in a hundred chance every year that there's going to be a major event in the bottled water that I as the convenience store owner have sitting, you know, on my shelves instead of selling it for a dollar a bottle, I'm going to sell it for $5 a bottle. Well, then in equilibrium, you're going to carry a higher stock of those things, right? At any given time, you're going to have more of those in the back because you're going to realize, whoa, there's, you know, under, there's the normal circumstances, but there's a small chance that, bam, I'm going to sell these things for quintuple the price, right? So just whatever the numbers were on the old regime where you know you're never going to be allowed to so-called price gouge, and whatever your carrying stock would be, you know, the size of the storeroom that it made sense for you to have. And when people started buying your bottled water, how low do you let the inventory go before you order more to replenish your stockpile from the manufacturer, you know, from the warehouse, wherever you're getting it from. If whatever decision you would make when you know you can never raise the price, well, then now if you're in a regime where you realize, oh no, it's legal. And maybe especially if you're in a society full of libertarians and it's socially acceptable to raise the price to clear the market when a disaster strikes, that's going to make you carry a much bigger inventory. Well, maybe not much bigger, but a bigger inventory, which again is what you want. Because the problem when the disaster hits is, oh no, we didn't have that much bottled water on hand. Well, now you're going to have more. So that's exactly what you'd want, that cities that are more prone to getting hit with natural disasters under this legal regime I'm talking about would now naturally market forces would lead the store owners in those areas to carry more of these critical supplies than places in other locations and then, you know, stores in other locations. And that doesn't that make sense? Isn't that what you would do if you were like the military commander and just deploying resources around the country to the various bases? And you knew there was a base that was likely to get cut off from the supply lines. Wouldn't you put more supplies in that base because of that fact? And yet that's not what would happen in the market if there are laws against price gouging. Merchants don't have an incentive to do that or they don't have as much of an incentive to do that, but they have that exact right incentive if they're allowed to charge what the market will bear, all right? Because again, market prices communicate information. It's a barometer of something, relative scarcity, let's call it. And so, you know, it's like if, well, I was gonna make a medical analogy, but I won't. <laughs> I was gonna say, if the patient's temperature is rising, you, want it, you need to know that as the doctor. And I was like, you wouldn't want to suppress it, but actually you do suppress it. So, but that's because the human body and the economy are not the same thing, right? You, you want it, those prices to communicate the information to people. You're not, by just saying, no, you can't charge what the market will bear or else we'll punish you. You're actually not solving the problem, right? If the way that the authorities kept the price of bottled water down was by having helicopters come over and drop 
you know, bottled water on pair, you know, coming out in parachutes down. And that's the way they suppressed quote price gouging was by flooding the area with more supplies, then that would be fine. You know, besides the point of, well, they use taxation to get that. All right. So that wouldn't make people worse off. What I'm saying, what hurts people though, is when the price is supposed to rise and the government just says, no, 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 we're going to punish you if you acknowledge that the market price has risen, that that's not creating more product. All that's doing is, like I say, screwing up the allocation of it. But anyway, so there's that element. But to the extent that you as a store owner know that you're earning a windfall, right? It's not that, ah, yep, I'm charging the price now for $5 a bottle for water, folks, but don't get mad at me because I knew that there was this small chance of this happening. That's why I have... 60 more cases of bottled water on hand than I otherwise would have. So, you know, you really ought to let me charge this $5, even though you're mad. I can see it in your faces. I'm not taking advantage of you. The reason I have so much water here and the guys down the street don't is because I thought of this. And if you don't let me charge you the five, well, then that means next time the disaster hits, I'm not going to have this much water because I'm going to realize, right, you know, that kind of thing. But to the extent that you're a store owner and you realize, whoa, I just experienced a windfall profit here. That, you know, you realize that, oh, yeah, I can raise the price because people are really desperate, but that's not rewarding my ingenuity or my foresight. I didn't know there was going to be a, you know, I didn't think of this. It's just I got dumb luck here. So if that happens, then I would say what you could do is still charge what the market bears, but then you donate that windfall to like the Red Cross or something. And they can go and they can buy bottled water at the high price and then hand it out to the people who really need it, who can't afford it or whatever. All right, so there's that element too. But if you just say, no, as a store owner, no, I would never profit from others' misfortune. Hey, water's the same today as it was yesterday. I understand, I applaud you, like you're being selfless, but you're not really doing that much good. Or right? In terms of, you know what? I could have just had $5,000 extra, but I choose not to. In a sense, you just donated that $5,000 to the first five people that came into your store instead of spreading it around the community or even better, finding the people in the community who are dying of thirst and have no money and giving your donation to them, right? So let me just say that again to make sure I didn't lose you. If you as a store owner feel guilty about, quote, price gouging, and there's, you know, you said, oh yeah, if I had charged what the market could bear, I would be, let's say, $5,000 richer at the end of today when I sold my bottled water for $5 a bottle instead of the normal one but I kept it at the normal price. And so I'm $5,000 poorer than I otherwise would have been, but I have a clean conscience. I'm saying, okay, I, I applaud you for in, you know, not wringing the 5,000 out of people. But by having done that, that meant your store got cleaned out right away. And so in a sense, yes, you donated $5,000 to your neighbors by not raising the price, but you gave it to the first few people who happened to walk in your store. And what are the chances they were the most deserving of that, of your charity? Instead, just to repeat the argument, you could have let the prices go up to what the market would bear. People would be grumbling. You'd have a bunch of extra money. You would ration the supply, right? So the people would just really buy what they needed. They wouldn't just go ahead and stock up. So more people would get the limited things in your store. Your, you know, The bottles of water you had on hand would be distributed to more households in the community when all was said and done with this approach. And you could then take the money that you did your windfall profits and go give it to the Red Cross or something or, you know, figure out who the local, or you can even just yourself go out and see people who look really destitute and give them $100 bills so they could go buy, you know, 20 bottles of water each at the high price, right? So you could do that. 
And I'm just pointing out, you see how money works and helps distri- you know, distribute things and allocate them to where they're needed. So a standard way that libertarians will talk about this sort of thing is to say that the market price, you know, allocates resources to the, to the people who want them the most or to the, it, it ensures that the resources go to where they're most needed. Thing, you know, they use language like that. Okay, let's put that aside. Come over to what seems to be a totally separate issue that of interpersonal utility comparisons. The statist will often argue, oh, it's common sense that because of what's called diminishing margin of utility, you know, the more units of something you get, the less and less important it is on the margin. That's why water is not that valuable to us. You know, a gallon of water doesn't mean anything, even though water is essential for life because we have so much water relative to our, the uses we can make of it. So because of that, a status might argue, a dollar to a poor man means a lot more to him than that dollar means to the rich guy that you take it from, right? Because on the margin, if you take, even if you take like $1,000 from Bill Gates, is he going to notice? Is he even going to care? It doesn't really hurt him any. He's not really put out. But you take that $1,000 from Bill Gates and you go find a homeless guy and give it to him, that's going to change his life, right? That's an inconceivable amount of money for a homeless guy to be given. And so the argument goes, using standard economics, with diminishing margin utility, we've increased total utility in the society by taking from the rich person and giving to a poor person. So that is bad economics, right? That's an abuse of at least standard textbook utility theory because when you say, oh yeah, somebody spends his income in the marketplace so as to maximize utility, that's really just saying the person chooses goods such that he can't get, you know, you couldn't arrange any other bundle that's affordable that he would have preferred, right? That's what that means. And then for somebody else, you know, they can make similar statements. And then to say, oh, if I do so, if I take an apple from one person and give it to somebody else, does that increase or decrease total utility? It's not just that that could be wrong. It's that it's nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's, it's a meaningless statement. And well, it's because there's a couple ways of seeing this. So one way of seeing it is to understand the process that you go through in order to talk about what does it mean to say someone maximizes utility or what does it mean when you say, oh, the reason he bought this, you know, he bought this apple instead of this pear was that the apple had more utility than the pear did. Assuming they had the same price. All right. That doesn't imply to speak like that doesn't mean that you're actually measuring the quantity of utility in the one versus the other and the number was bigger with the apple than it was with the pear. It could mean that in certain settings, like that language, right? If you say the apple had more calories than the pear, then that's, you know, that's the thing you're measuring. But to say it had more utility than the pear in economics, if you understand economic science and value theory and price theory, that doesn't mean you're actually measuring something, right? Textbook, I mean, that's true in the Austrian approach. It's also true in the neoclassical mainstream approach. In textbook mainstream economic theory, you can build up what are called utility functions just from ordinal preference rankings, you know, first, second, third, that sort of type of thing, not using cardinal numbers. Okay, so to try to compare those across individuals doesn't make any sense. It would be like 
look at it as, as friendship. That's a good analogy, I think. And so to say, you know, Jim has his best friend and he's got his second best friend and his third best friend. For Jim to say, oh, so-and-so is my best friend, does that mean Jim has this thing called friendship units and he measures his intensity of friendship with every person in the world and then looks at all those numbers and picks the biggest one and said, ah, this person must be my best friend because I have the highest amount of measurable friendship units with this person? No. To say you have a best friend does not imply that friendship is a quantifiable thing that you could measure the way you measure length or weight or mass, or electric charge, right? But yet, it's still meaningful to, to rank things. You still can say, this person is a better friend to me than this person is. But it wouldn't make sense to say, this person gives me 68% more friendship than that person does. That's kind of a meaningless, you know, it's not just that you say, oh, how could you know? It's that really, what do you even mean by that? Even though when I say this person is a better friend than that person is, people aren't mystified. They're like, what do you mean, man? We mean better friend. No, you know exactly what the guy means. But if you say this person is 3.2 times the friend that person is, it's not just that that's kind of a funny degree of precision. It's that even philosophically, like what, what does that even mean? Okay, so you see how that works? So I know some people would probably die on the hill and say, no, no, friendship could be quantifiable, but I'm hoping people can at least understand the sense in which that would be a reasonable set of reactions to have. To say, yep, someone being a better friend, that makes sense to me. To say someone is 3.2 times the friend, that makes no sense. So that's what utility theory is like. That you can say the apple gives me more utility than the pear. And all you really mean by that is, given the choice, I would pick the apple over the pear. That's all it means to say it gives me more utility. I prefer it. Th those are interchangeable statements. To say I prefer the apple to the pear is the same thing as saying the apple gives me more utility than the pear. It's not that to say it gives me more utility. Well, in any event. All right, so those are interchangeable statements and you're not measuring anything. You don't need to assume there is something to be measured in order to do utility theory and, and to explain choice and the formation of market prices. And so again, because of that, just go back to the friend example, what would interpersonal comparisons mean, right? Imagine saying, you know, oh, Jim has a lot of friends. So if we took away one of his friends and gave that friend over to Joe, who doesn't have any friends, then the total amount of friendship in society went up. Does that really make sense? Because the amount of friendship that Jim lost is offset, more than offset by the amount of friendship that the other person gained. I mean, it might, but you can see how you wouldn't be able to reach that conclusion just by saying the more friends somebody has, the less important on the margin each additional friend is which would be like diminishing marginal friendship, right? So you could see how you'd have a whole system, a framework of, yep, you can have your best friend, your second best friend, your third best friend. And in general, the more friends you have on the margin, the less important each additional friend is. You can think like that, okay, yeah. Or, <laughs> you know, if, if you're going to have a party, and the, you know, they, they had the capacity was being varied and you know, the fire marshal would say, oh no, you can only have 50 friends. Oh, you can only have 40 friends. You could come up with scenarios where you could see that, oh yeah, you know, on the margin, given that the fire marshal makes you reduce the size by one more person, it's going to be your least important friend that you tell not to come, right? You see, you, see, you could make statements like that. Okay. None of that implies that friendship is a measurable quantity. 
And none of that would imply that it, if you lost your friend and that person went to be somebody else's friend, that it would make sense to talk about whether total friendship went up or down. Again, it wouldn't just be like, oh, how could you know? It's that, no, the statement doesn't make any sense. What does that even mean? All right. So now the question is, does it make sense to say you can't have interpersonal utility comparisons and to say goods are being channeled to where they're needed most? So one quick answer is to point out that at least the way some economists talk about economic efficiency, th there's no problem at all because they're, they're using dollars. They're using what's called willingness to pay. So when you say things like, oh, the, the water gets channeled to where it's needed most, they just mean to who's willing to pay the most for it. And in case you think that that's cheating um, or that that's insignificant, I'll put it that way. So you could, you might say, oh, okay, fine. But when you're trying to appeal to a normal person, you say, we want the goods to go to where they're needed most or where they're valued most, let's say, because needed is kind of a loaded term to say where they're valued the most. If all you meant was the people who are willing to pay the most dollars for them, well, that's not going to satisfy, you know, nobody doubted that rich people would be okay in the hurricane. The question was the poor, right? That's the issue. So first, let me just quickly clarify um, the way some mainstream economists use the term efficiency. What it means is goods get allocated to where there's the highest willingness to pay. And so it's this criterion of efficiency where the benefits or the, the gains to the winners outlaw the or outweigh the losses to the losers, that kind of thing. So to give a quick example, and I'm not going to make this too rigorous. I'm just trying to give the intuition of this because I was thinking it through and it's, it gets kind of complicated and I don't think I can dot all the I's and cross all the T's in a succinct fashion. But the basic idea is, let's say there's one bottle of water and we're trying to, and there's, there's two people that we're trying to decide who should, uh, between whom, you know, it's got to go to one of them. And the one person is willing to pay up to $3 for it whereas the other person is willing to pay up to $10 for it. So in general, the economists would argue it should go to the person who's willing to pay 10. And you might say, well, that's not fair that only rich people get it or whatever. But okay, even in that instance, you know, why would it be clearly inefficient for the bottle to end up in the hands of the guy who only wants to pay three? And the idea is because there's a way to make them both better off. The rich guy offers 10, he gets the bottle. So he's better off than in the other scenario, right? Because we, by stipulation, he wanted to, he would be willing to pay up to 10, meaning he'd rather have the bottle than the $10. So if he walks away with the bottle and out, is out 10, we know he's better off relative to the other situation where he didn't get the bottle. But then the first guy, it's true, he doesn't have the bottle and he was willing to pay three for it. And now you can give him $10, right? And so it's true, I haven't fully proven, because the thing is, what if not his willingness to pay goes up? That's the problem with these kind of arguments. So it gets tricky. There's a whole literature on this stuff in response to the coast, so-called coast theorem. Because, you know, what if it's like a homeless guy who's he only has $3 to his name and you gave him a $10 bill. Now he's got $13. Maybe he'd say, hey, give me that back, 13 Even there on its own terms, you say, okay, now he's got the highest willingness to pay. So the bottle should go back. You see what I mean? So it's not that the principle's wrong. It's just the way you try to quickly illustrate how it works in practice leads to problem like feedback loops and you, know, you get tied up in knots. But that's the general idea that, if someone isn't willing to pay so much for it and someone else is willing to pay more, that go ahead and give it to the person willing to pay more and give that money to the other guy. And so you can see how the first scenario where the, where the bottle goes to the hands of the person who's not willing to pay the most for it, 
can't be the best possible outcome because that gets trumped by the scenario where, again, the rich person gets it and we take the money and give it to the other guy who now isn't getting it. All right, so it's true that in general, you could say, oh, well, how do you know that's going to happen? But you could sort of do a bit of hand-waving and say, in practice with millions of transactions day in and day out, having the goods get steered to the hands of the people who are willing to pay the most for them does allow for everybody to be much better off than they would be under alternative frameworks. Right? So you could, you could probably couldn't prove that logically, but you can see the plausibility of that. Okay, so there's that element. Beyond that, we can also appeal to sort of the calculation argument that Mises gets into, that market prices really do serve a coordinating function. And so it's it's true, you know, when Mises will say things, he does it really eloquently at points. The idea is, look, at the profit and loss system that helps business people decide on inputs. And so here's the rationality that's built into there, that you as a business... You, you, pay, you spend money on inputs, you transform them in some fashion into either goods or services, and then you sell those goods and services as output for money. And then, you know, at the end of the accounting period, your CPA or whoever can tell you, here's what you spent on the inputs, here's what you made on the outputs. Did you earn a profit or a loss? And if you earned a profit, in a sense, that means you increased the market value of those resources, Whereas if you suffered a loss, that means you took resources that were of a certain value in terms of the market, not intrinsically. That doesn't even make sense. We're not talking about subjective value either. We're talking about market value. And then you transformed it into things that had a lower market value. So there's a sense in which you are being a bad steward of society's scarce resources. If you consistently suffer losses and that's why you go out of business and that's what should happen to you. All right, so this is the kind of argument Mises makes and it's why central planning doesn't work. Even if you had the best of intentions as a central planner, even if you had all the engineering facts forever, without market prices, all you have are heterogeneous goods going in the one end of the factory and heterogeneous goods coming out the other end. And you have no way of knowing whether you're adding economic value to society, whether that's an efficient use of those resources without market prices. And so Mises says, yeah, it's not perfect, but the accounting system, market prices, profit and loss gives us some guidance that's ultimately driven by people's willingness to pay. So is it good to use scarce farmland to grow tobacco to make cigarettes? Well, there's lots of different value systems and ethical ones that you say yes or no, but from the perspective of consumers being willing to spend money on goods, yes, it is a good use to at least have some of that devoted because cigarette production is profitable. So... I, I think, yes, it's probably true that to say where goods get steered to who wants them most is, or who needs, so you say who needs the most, but who wants the most, and therefore this is a good thing. There is a, a bit of a leap there, a stretch there, and in, in certain scenarios in particular, you know, that wouldn't be good. Particularly talking about like heroin or something. So yes, I agree there shouldn't be price control, but it'd be funny to say, to ensure that the heroin gets to who needs it the most or who wants it the most, and that's a great thing. You know, okay. Again, still shortages are bad and <laughs> I'm against price controls and heroin, but I could see in certain cases how, you know, people could think, okay, that doesn't really sound the same as to say water getting channeled to who needs it the most. All right. But ultimately, again, just to point out that what's going on with the two usages, there, strictly speaking, we're being reduced to a willingness to pay thing. And even with Mises, so the Austrians don't use the willingness to pay principle. That's from mainstream 
economics, but I'm saying like the Misesian calculation argument and then the justification for markets does rely on money prices, which ultimately means consumers being willing to spend money on things, sort of guiding the system. And, and yes, if you don't endorse what the consumers spend their money on, then you might not find some of these market outcomes compelling, but there is some, you know, rationality there. Whereas you're groping in the dark if you deviate from that. So that, but that doesn't in, imply an interpersonal utility comparison, right? So that language, to the extent you use it, does not involve an interpersonal utility comparison. If we're saying, just to go back to that example I used, there's a bottle of water, one guy's willing to pay up to $3 for it, another guy's willing to pay up to 10 to say it would be a mistake, it would be inefficient for that bottle of water to go to the guy who's only willing to pay three for it. The reason we're calling it that outcome inefficient is because we could take the bottle of water and give it to the other guy and that guy could give his $10 to the other guy and make them both better off according to their own value systems. So we're not saying we're hurting one guy and helping another and we think on balance that's justified. We're saying it's conceivable that they both would agree that this outcome is better than the situation where the poor guy, or not the poor guy, the guy who's only one to pay three gets the bottle of water. Okay, and so because of that, that's the sense in which we knock out that scenario as being inefficient. All right. So that's that's the resolution, though, again, in practice, in certain situations, maybe that's a bit contrived itself. Because again, to say, to try to use that logic or that reasoning to then justify why the store owner can go ahead and charge 10 and give it to the person willing to pay 10, in that scenario, the, what if the store owner keeps the 10 and doesn't hand it to the person who only has three that he's willing to offer for it? So it's not clear how did that... Yeah. So yes, you've ruled out a, what's called a Pareto inefficient outcome, but it's it's not necessary. Here's here's one last one I'll end on. It just occurred to me. This is a brain teaser I would give to uh, my students when I taught at Hillsdale. So a Pareto efficient outcome is one in which the, you can't change the allocation of resources without making at least one person worse off, right? And so if you could change the allocation of resources to make everybody better off, then that original allocation is Pareto inefficient, right? So to be Pareto efficient, just repeat myself, means no matter what you do, it's impossible to make everybody better off. Any move, it makes at least one person worse off, right? Now, given that definition, is it possible to move from a Pareto inefficient allocation to a Pareto efficient one and hurt somebody? And you're tempted to say, no, it's not possible. Yes, it is possible. And that's what I'm saying with the bottle of water example. The guy with the $3 could get the bottle of water. And then we say, no, 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 that's inefficient. That's Pareto inefficient because we could take that from you, give it to this rich guy over here, and then he could take his $10 bill and give it to you and everybody would be better off. And he says, oh yeah, you're right. And say, so that's why we're going to allow price gouging and the store owner is going to end up with $10. The rich guy is going to end up with the bottle of water and you are going to keep your $3 and not have any water. And he's going to say, wait, I just got hurt by that. And you say, yeah, but don't worry. We're now on a Pareto efficient outcome because there's no way now that the store owner's got the $10, we can't take it from him. That would hurt him. And the rich guy's got his bottle of water. We can't take that from him because he'd be worse off. So we're Pareto efficient outcome, but you see how that Pareto efficient outcome is. Okay. So a little brain teaser there for you. All right. Well, I will wrap up this episode at this point. Thanks for your attention, everybody. And I'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. 
the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.